to be with you again. Uh, jumper's back on last week. It was a bit milder, was able to uh, be short sleeves, but we're back into the cooler weather again. And if you've been here for this little series, you'll know that over three dates, this being the third, we've been thinking about who the Holy Spirit is, then what he does, which was last week's subject, and then this week we're thinking about how he leads and as we've heard, there'll be space for questions as well, and hopefully some answers if I have any to give. So just to remind you of what we have thought about so far, beginning to think about who the Holy Spirit is, we said that he is fully God. He is one with the Father and Son, the Trinity of these three persons, a person who feels, who has a will, and who possesses all of the attributes of God in his holiness, uh, of course, we call him the Holy Spirit, but also in his power, uh, in his goodness, in his love, all of these wonderful truths, and his righteousness and justice. In the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel that God had chosen, we see that he anointed and filled and gifted at least some people there, especially those who had roles in leading. But in the New Testament, Christ has poured the Holy Spirit out on all Christians, so that all Christians have been baptized in him and we receive him when we become a Christian, when we are born again. In fact, that's part of what he does. He gives us new birth. He baptizes or we are baptized in him by the Lord Jesus when we become a Christian. But we must allow him to fill us daily. And I used that picture of a house. You might remember and said that the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home in the house that is our lives whenever we become a Christian but sometimes it could be like we're sort of squeezing him into one corner, leaving him in the entrance hall. We need to throw open all of the doors and allow him to teach us and guide us. So what does he do? Well, he saves us. It is by him that the salvation that Christ has accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection becomes effective in our lives. So he takes the work of Jesus and applies it to our lives, or we might say he includes us, takes me and puts me into Jesus, into what Jesus has done. And he seals us. He, he is a seal on our lives, protecting us for the return of Jesus, keeping us and holding on to us. And he shows us Jesus as we read the Bible, as we hear the word of God preached he reveals Jesus to us as we think about Jesus, as we pray. He opens the eyes of our hearts. We don't necessarily see Jesus physically with these eyes, but we begin to appreciate who Jesus is. We understand that Jesus is the Son of God. We learn to love Jesus more. And then he shapes us to become like Jesus. He is changing us into the likeness of Christ. And of course, he also gives gifts to every believer. So every Christian has been given a gift or is a gift from the Holy Spirit to the church. To, and we should use those gifts in love and in an orderly way for the health of the body of Christ, the church. And a person who is filled by the Spirit, well, how will we know that? They will have power to stand for Jesus against opposition. They'll have power to speak up for Jesus, to tell other people about him, and to serve using the gifts the Spirit has given. And to do that with faith and with joy, with wisdom 
and with love. That's what the Spirit wants to bring in your life, in my life. He wants to make me someone who loves Jesus more and who loves other people more. He wants to give me wisdom to know what is true and what is good. He wants me to have joy, to enjoy the things of God, to to have that confidence, even when things are tough, not always the same as happiness, but actually in that deep contentment in my heart that even when things are tough, God is in control and I can trust in him and to have faith to be trusting in Jesus. So that's what he wants to do in us. But how does he do that? How does he lead us in our lives? Well, as we begin to think about that, I just want to remind us or, or spell it out if it hasn't been clear so far. How does someone receive the Holy Spirit? Well, we did look at the book of Acts in the first evening when I was with you, and we see there that on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish Christians, the Jews who had believed in Jesus, received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Spirit. Now, that didn't involve anybody else doing anything. God made that happen. And similarly, when the Gentiles believed the gospel that Peter preached to them in chapter 10, the same thing happened to them. So that Peter said, well, hang on, the same thing has happened to them as happened to us on the day of Pentecost. God has saved these people as well. But we also have a couple of places in Acts where the Spirit is received by the laying on of hands, specifically the hands of apostles. So the Samaritans when they became Christians, they received the Spirit when Peter and John came up from Jerusalem and laid hands on them. And then later on in chapter 19, you've got some disciples of John the Baptist in the city of Ephesus, and they received the Holy Spirit when the apostle Paul lays his hands. And so some people say, well, look, there you go. That's how you receive the Spirit. Someone has to lay hands on you. Um, and, And it's as if the Spirit is conveyed from that person to you. Now, a couple of things about that. First of all, notice it was apostles who were used by God in that way. And when I was with you in that first week, I suggested that in Acts, there are some things that happen there, which happen that way because it was really important when the church was beginning, that there was only one church and that the Samaritans and the Jews were brought together. Remember, they had been enemies for a long time. And they had to be brought together. So it was really important that it was clear that those Samaritans were part of the same church that Jesus had begun with Peter and John and the other disciples. And similarly, the disciples of John the Baptist, we sometimes forget just how great a figure John the Baptist was in God's plan. And he still, years after his death, had followers in Ephesus, which is miles away from where he lived. Uh, And so it was important that they too were included in the church. So those two occasions are kind of unusual. They're not typical. The Lord Jesus, when he taught about the Spirit in John's gospel, he said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart or her heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive receive rather, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Last time we saw Jesus teaching in John 14 and John 16, and he said um, that if we, uh, it was good that he would go away because then the Spirit would come. 
after Jesus was glorified, returned to his Father, then the Spirit could come. But notice what Jesus says. Whoever believes in him, the Holy Spirit will well up within them like living water. It doesn't say some of those who believe. It doesn't say if you believe in me and then later on ask for the Holy Spirit. No, this is something that happens when we believe in Jesus. And again, Paul, the apostle, can write to the church in Ephesus and say, in him also, in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice that. He says, when you believed, you were sealed. So, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? By believing in Jesus. By putting your faith in the Lord Jesus. The person who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit who gives them new life and takes up residence in their life, makes it his home. And, and, and how do you then continue to grow in the Holy Spirit, to know him more and for him to know you more by keeping on believing in Jesus, by keeping on trusting in him? So when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says this. He talks about two kinds of people. He says there are those who live according to the flesh, and they have their minds set on what the flesh desires. And there are those who live in accordance with the Spirit, and they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, and it can't do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. But you, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see what Paul's saying? There are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who live according to the flesh. And we need to think about what that means. What is the flesh? I'll explain that in just a moment. And then there are people who live according to the Spirit. There are people who are in the flesh and people who are in the Spirit. There are people whose minds are set on the things of the flesh and there are those who have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. And notice he also says those who are in the realm of the flesh. So these are two different realms or two different kingdoms. We're either in the realm of the flesh or we're in the realm of the spirit. And then he says, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Christ. Okay, so there are only two possibilities. Either you don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you don't belong to Jesus and you're not a Christian, or you are a Christian and you do have the Holy Spirit, and you live according to the Spirit. Now, the word Paul uses is the flesh, and Jesus used this as well. He said, it's the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. When it comes to spiritual life, eternal life, that is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The flesh is of no use. It doesn't help. Now, what does flesh mean? At one level, it just means meat. You know, that's an older English word for a bit of meat. That's flesh. And so the, the body that I live in is made of flesh. So in one sense, being in the flesh is being alive physically. Well, that's all of us, isn't it? But not alive spiritually. Okay, there's the important point. You can be alive physically, but not alive spiritually. The Apostle Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body that we live in can't inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. When a human body gives birth to a, a baby, it's another human body, isn't it? That's how it works. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, we can be alive in our bodies, but dead spiritually. And the Holy Spirit has to give new life. But there's another thing that this idea of flesh means when the Bible uses it. It's not just the body. It's your whole life without the Spirit of God, without Christ. It's a human being who has fallen from God, powerless to save him or herself, under sin and Satan. So the person who is in the flesh... Paul says, for example, to the Corinthians, he says, I can't address you as spiritual people because you're still people of the flesh. You're just doing what everybody else does. You're living as if you were just another human being. And Paul says in Romans, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The NIV translates the word flesh there as sinful nature. Because what it's trying to say is this, that, that without God, without Jesus, I just do what my body tells me to do, what feels right to me. I do what gives me pleasure and satisfaction. I do what I think is important. I do what my goals are. That's what the flesh is there. It's, it's me without God. I don't have my mind set on the things of God, but on the things of this world. Just like everybody else, I might want to get rich, or I might want to be famous, or popular, or have lots of friends, or have lots of fun in life. I might even want to do good stuff, because people will think well of me then, won't they, as well? But when a person becomes a Christian... The question is, what does the Holy Spirit want me to do? What does God want me to do? And of course, I'm no longer powerless. The person who is in the flesh, without the Holy Spirit, can't do what God wants them to do. Even if I try, I can't be sinless. I can't do the right thing. I can't give glory to God. But if I follow the Holy Spirit, I can do what is right. And I can say no to sin. So the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians. He says, walk by the Spirit. Now notice what he says at the very end of the passage, the bit in red. He says, if we live by the Spirit, that's, that's the, the Romans picture, okay? You're either in the flesh, living according to the flesh, or you're in the Spirit, 
living in the Spirit. So if we live by the Spirit, if we've been made alive by the Spirit of God, let us walk by the Spirit. You see that? I am living by the Spirit, so I should walk by the Spirit. So Paul says, I say walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're pulling you in two different directions. You see that? They're opposed to each other. And they keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh, Paul says, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? And you can probably think of the things in your life. Maybe they're on that list, or maybe there are other things that you would have to say, that's the thing that I do when I just do what suits me, when I don't listen to God. That's the way I lived before I was a Christian. That was what was important to me. Even as a Christian, that's what I still sometimes do. That's where I'm tempted. But, Paul says, I warn you, those who do such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Okay, I've been made alive by the Spirit. That's what happened when I became a Christian. I was given new spiritual life. My body didn't stop living, but I'm not just a body. I am now alive spiritually in relationship with God. And because I am alive in relationship with God, I need to make the decision every day to walk by the Spirit and not to walk by the flesh. That's a choice I have to make. The Spirit's leading me this way, the flesh is leading me that way, and we face this every single day. I'm tempted to do what I know is wrong. Well, how am I going to resist it? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is leading me and saying, no, go this way instead. So the Spirit will lead us. He will speak to us. So how does He lead us? Well, he leads us, first of all, to Jesus, always wanting us to do the Christ-like thing, what is loving and joyful. Jesus said, the Spirit will glorify me. The Apostle Paul said that we are those who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Right? This is really important, isn't it? Because we live in a culture and in a world that tells you what? Be true to yourself. Follow your heart, don't we? That's, that's the, the mantra of the world we live in. And what Paul is saying is we don't have any confidence in ourselves, in our heart, because we know that if we go our own way, we'll make a mess. Our confidence is in Jesus, and we worship him by the Spirit. We want to be like him. That's what's great. 
And how does the Spirit does it? Well, he does it the way Jesus does. Jesus was gentle and lowly. And the Spirit does not force us or control us. He can be resisted. Acts talks about people who resisted the Spirit of God. He can be quenched. He can be grieved. In other words, Spirit, whenever you are tempted to sin as a Christian, doesn't stop you from sinning. But He does speak to you. He warns you. He speaks to your heart. He prompts you to say, don't you want to do what Jesus wants? Don't you want to be like Him? He speaks to your conscience, but He doesn't force you. He allows you to make your choice. But He's always leading you in the right direction. And what he wants to do is to restore order and to grow self-control in you. Remember, the list of the Spirit, of the fruit of the Spirit, ends with self-control. And how does he do it? He does it by the Word. Now, the Spirit, I think, can speak to you in lots of ways. I've just said he speaks through your conscience, and he does. He, he sharpens it up. He makes it more accurate so that, so that you, you recognize what is right and wrong. Sometimes he'll speak, in fact, often through other people. When someone is preaching to you, the Spirit of God will be speaking to you through their words. Someone might share something with you that they want to remind you of that comes from God. The Spirit of God has prompted them to share it. It's a beautiful thing. You're praying and and, and you just have that urge. You think about somebody else and you think, oh, I wonder how they're doing. And you send them an encouraging message or you arrange to meet up with them, and the Spirit of God has prompted you to do that, to bring truth to that person, encouragement and help to them. But ultimately, he does it, and most clearly through the Word of God, as the Word of God is preached, as we read it, and he opens our eyes to see what is true, and he lays it on our heart. He plants it like seed in our lives. Jesus said, It's the Spirit who gives life. Remember, we saw that earlier. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Do you see that? It's not even, sometimes people talk about the Word and the Spirit, but Jesus says that the the Word of God, His words, are spiritual. They are spirit. They are alive. They are living words. And again, the Apostle Paul says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. In the battle that we fight against temptation, against wrong ideas, against falsehood in the world, the weapon that we have is the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God will remind you of the Word of God. When you're tempted, He'll remind you of what God's Word says about that sin and of what God's Word promises if you are faithful to Him. He'll remind you when you're in a difficult situation and you're trying to think, what should I say to this person? He'll remind you of the truth of God's Word. He'll remind you that when you have a doubt about whether God's Word is true, He'll remind you of the assurances of God's Word. When you doubt whether God loves you, He'll remind you of the love of God. This is what the Spirit does. He reminds us of the words of God. I'm going to just finish with with a picture So we read about walking by the Spirit, but I was thinking about driving by the Spirit. Um, Maybe because that's when my character flaws come out the most. And when you see which fruit of the Spirit is most lacking in my life, patience is the answer, okay? Um, Because sometimes when we get, men anyway, when we get behind the wheel of a car, we just 
think that doesn't matter what we do and we can, okay? But actually, the spirit driving, think of your life as driving through life. Where is the Holy Spirit in that picture? You're driving your car through life. Now, I've heard this put in different ways. Maybe it's the fuel in your tank giving you power to keep going. And I think certainly he's the one who empowers you. Maybe he's the, the power steering. I've heard that illustration used, and it's quite good. I remember once my wife's car, uh, when I was, um, she was driving at home, the, power, the electric started to go, and eventually the power steering went, and it had the wee tiny wheel that new cars, modern cars have. That was really, really hard. She could hardly get it home. And when I tried to drive over, I was thinking, how on earth did she manage to get around the corners? The Spirit gives you the power. You have to do the turning, but he gives you the power. Always when you choose to do what is right, to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit, He will give you the power to do it, to resist temptation and to do what is right. He's the satnav, maybe you could think. You know, we used to talk, and, and it's quite helpful, I think, of the Bible as God's map, but the Spirit is the satnav who guides us according to that map, if you like, as we go along through life. He wants to direct us to what is right and good and I've one skipped out for some reason, but sensors and alarms, that's my, my son loves alarms of all kinds. But you know in your car, there's the little sensor, the warning light that flashes, or the parking sensor, if you've got those, that tell you you're about to crash into something. The Spirit is warning us. But none of those are, a, are a perfect, none of them are a perfect picture, but maybe the closest is the last one, that he's the co-pilot never driven in a rally, although my wife might say, <laughs> I think I am sometimes, but um, you know when those rally cars and there's somebody beside the driver and they have the map of the, the route and they're always saying, turn hard right, hard right, whatever, the Spirit is beside us. He's with us. He's not just an impersonal fuel in the car or sensor or power behind the steering or even a recorded voice on the sat nav. He is living, present, with us, speaking to us every turn along the way, encouraging us to go the right way, to take the right turn, and when we take the wrong turn, helping us to get back on track. And when the car breaks down, he's got the skills to get out and fix it and get it going again for you. Do you see? He's the one who comes with us on the journey, always with us. Not the backseat driver that you just wish would shut up, but at least I hope not. That's what it is when we go our own way and we don't go God's way. It's like saying to him, I don't want to hear from you anymore. But he is the one who comes with us to take us on the journey, to give us the power, yes, to enable us to do what is right, yes, to show us what is right, but also to teach us and fix us and repair us and to be with us throughout life's journey. So, maybe when you're back in the car, whether you're driving or not, or you see one driving past, you'll think, my life is a journey. The Spirit is my co-pilot. He doesn't force me. He doesn't take over the steering wheel and say, I'll drive. He says, you're going to have to drive. It maybe he's your driving instructor to say, here's how you drive. He will teach you and guide you. Because he wants you to become someone who knows how to follow God, how to obey God. That's what we're going to be doing eternally. And the Spirit is our teacher as we go along. So we're going to take a break, but let me just pray for you as I finish this little bit. Father, help us as we think about our lives as a journey, 
in a car to follow the guidance of the Spirit, to listen to Him, to go your way and not our own way, to use every gift that you've given for your glory and for the good of others. We pray, Father, that you would fill us by your Spirit, make us like Jesus, and teach us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul, on the, on the early slides, you had up maybe four times the filling of the Holy Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit, and it said that four times. Is there any sense in which Christians can, that filling can be depleted in some way? And if it can, can it be rebuilt again? Yes, so the, the question, I'll just repeat for the sake of the video, is um, about the filling of the Holy Spirit, which obviously is used many times in Scripture, and I've talked about that cannot be depleted and repl- cannot be then replenished in some way. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, we need to be repeatedly filled by the Spirit. The, the distinction I would make, though, is uh, I don't think it's helpful when we remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. We shouldn't think of that as a kind of I'm a leaky bucket and you know, somehow the Spirit leaks out and then I, I uh, need some more poured in. He is a person. So I think what happens when, this, when the filling of the Spirit diminishes is that what I've done is closed off some of the doors in the house, if you like, or uh, taken some wrong turns on the road and uh, stopped listening to him. Um, so, so it is right and important that I say, uh, Father, fill me with your Spirit today, each day. May he fully occupy every part of my life. May there not be any part of my thinking or any of my decisions that aren't under his influence, that aren't following what he is telling me to do. Um, Now, I know with that as well, there, there will often be times in our Christian life when we have particular experiences of the presence of God, and that's a work of the Spirit too, when when you're overwhelmed with a sense of the love of God, or when there is a peace that transcends understanding, that grips your heart, and um, you know, many Christians will testify to that points on the journey when when the Lord has worked in their life in a special way, and that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, But it's not receiving Him afresh in the sense as if he's gone somewhere it's being more aware of him i think that's what changes that we are more aware that we are more available that we're listening better to him Uh, or maybe that just at that point in our lives he needs to give us a bit of extra encouragement or a bit of an extra push um, to 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 uh to do something that's quite important that we we hear so yes we do need to be continually filled with the spirit and in fact it's not just a sort of top up once a day or whatever. It's actually to say, Lord, every moment along the way, uh, would, would I pray that the Spirit would fill me and that I would be listening to him. Does that help? Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Good question. Anyone else? Well, just sort of tagging along the end, that is that the idea Paul, of sort of intimacy, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. because when you think of you know, as you say, the idea of a leaking bucket, I mean, it's comical, um, and it doesn't make sense that if the Holy Spirit is a person, then that, you know, in some sense, he is depleted, but, but, but it's our intimacy yeah. is sort of affected, um, and that the coldness is yeah. on our side, yeah. even of whenever we grieve the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. It is 
usually by our resistance, our choosing of something. Is that the idea of them as well? Yes. Thank you. So again, the question is, is it really, is it intimacy? Is that the right right way to speak about it, that we have to be intimate with him? When we grieve him, that's by our doing. When there's a sense of coldness, that's really a fault on our part. I think that is that is true. You know, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but the, but but he is not given to uh, huffs or sulking. You know, sometimes you can think, well, I've grieved him, so he's going to go in huffs with me. That's not because the Spirit is God. That is not the character and nature of our Father God or of Jesus when you see him living with people. It's not the, the nature of the Holy Spirit either. And so he is always there to speak to us, prompting us. The question is, are we listening? Um, yes, intimacy, I think, is a good, a good word to use as well. Um, you know, I, uh, th- there is this uh, lady who lives in the same house as me. Uh, she's my wife, by the way. <laughs> um, but sometimes you would recognize that immediately uh, if you observed my uh, treatment of her. And other times it's kind of, we're, you know, ships passing in the night or just, you know, uh, whatever. So the intimacy that in any relationship needs to be maintained by listening well, by spending time together, that's true of our relationship with God as well. So the Spirit is always with us. Jesus said that he will not leave you. He makes his home in your life. The question is, am I listening to him? Am I spending time with him? Am I praying? Am I reading the Word of God? I mean, there's no point in me saying, I want to hear from the Spirit of God. I want him to do something amazing in my life. And well, he's inspired this book, and if I'm not digging into it and spending time in it, how could I expect? I'm not saying he can't speak in other ways, and often he will, but most often he will speak to us by either as we read the Word or by what we remember of the Word, uh, and as together as God's people, we're studying the Bible and we're praying for one another. That's when the Spirit will be most likely to, to speak and to lead us. The Holy Spirit then um, makes you aware of you think you've done wrong, and you say it's something wrong, Lord. You're guilty, you have this guilty feeling, that's the Holy Spirit working within you. So, so the question is whether when we recognize we're guilty, um, is that the Holy Spirit working in us? And yes, I think there is now also this thing called the conscience, if you like, and everybody has a conscience, or at least almost everybody. Uh, but the thing with the conscience is you can ignore it and you can, you can blunt it effectively. The Bible even talks about people who seared their conscience, you know, like uh, putting a hot poker on it and it, it's almost dead and they can't feel anything, any guilt. But what the Spirit does when he comes to make his home in our lives, I think, is to give new life to that part of us as well, to make it more sensitive. So if we're really listening to the Spirit, we'll be more aware of sin. We, we'll both feel guilty if we have sinned, and we'll also see sin as something very ugly and, and, and unattractive. We realize that when my mind is on those things, that's death. That's what the Apostle Paul said, remember in Romans, that that's just going to, the thing that without listening to the Spirit might seem attractive to us. Oh, I'll feel a whole lot better if I say that to him. Again, <laughs> okay, the Spirit says, hang on, here's the reality, you know so he's giving us wisdom to see that what will happen if I say that to that person is, I'll just feel worse, they'll feel worse, the relationship will be broken. The Spirit wants to save us from those things. 
So what he'll be telling me to do is to say the kind thing to that person. Or I'm tempted to do something that I know is wrong, and I think that'll make me, it'll give me pleasure, it'll make me feel happy, but the Spirit says, no, but you know that even if there's a bit of pleasure, eventually you're just going to feel worse, and it's going to bring death to you. So yes, he, he is speaking to us all of the time. The question is whether we, we're listening. And he does that for non-Christians, convicting them of sin, showing them the reality of sin and of judgment and of what is right. That's what Jesus said. And he does it in our lives as Christians as well to, to lead us to what is right and good and not what is wrong. Does that make sense? If they can turn to the, the Spirit leading us to Jesus and leading us to Christ and be more like Christ, in terms of our day-to-day decisions, or let's say the big decisions of people look to God for guidance, and it's not a choice between sin and, you know, <laughs> it's not between flesh and the spirit, it's between this perfectly acceptable good choice and this perfectly acceptable good choice. What's the kind of the theology around the spirit's role in that or? Yes. Thank you, Stephen. So the question is about decisions where it isn't a question of sin or not sinning. And that's a really good question. Of course, there are decisions that that are like that in life, although probably fewer than we like to think, because almost always when I am faced with something, the question is, what's my motive? You know, am I going to take the the choice, say it's a job, there's two good jobs, am I going to go for the one with more money, even though I can really see I'm going to neglect my family if I go for that, or I'm going to be asked to do some dodgy business? Well, I think there that does become a question of choosing what is right or what is wrong. But it is possible that there are two good jobs or two good courses of study or even potentially two good people who would both make good wives or a good husband. Uh, And in those situations, I think God does give us freedom to make a choice. Um, And the Spirit will give us wisdom to choose, but he'll then also give us the power to follow through on that choice and the assurance of the love of God. Because once you've made that choice, the question, you know, that then there'll be temptations that come your way or doubts or questions. Uh, And I think what the Spirit then does is to give us that power to keep walking in that way. Um, So what is the role of the Spirit? What is God's role in that? I think God is a good father who says here is a a good choice. He wants us to mature through making choices. And the Spirit will certainly guide us. I think if we're really praying and really asking and being careful and also taking advice from other people who are listening to the Holy Spirit, who are full of the Spirit, then we're not going to make a disastrous wrong choice. Do you see what I mean? So we can have confidence in that. We shouldn't be afraid, oh, I'm going to take a wrong turn. But, you know, just like your sat-nav has a great way of getting you back on track, I think that's another wonderful thing that the Holy Spirit does as we drive. I might take a wrong turn. might be a major wrong turn, and I need to do a U-turn. might be just a, well, that wasn't the best route. It's not the quickest route to get to be like Jesus or to get to where God wants me to be. But it's not off the route entirely. So maybe that picture as well of, you know, that there are different routes to get to the destination, um, but he will always be trying to bring us back onto the the straightest and the quickest route, um, even when we take a minor wrong turn. So it's a good observation, because I know I've majored on that question of the flesh and the spirit, which is where scripture does does as well. Um, But there are many things in life where, where you can have confidence that this is not a bad, it's not a wrong choice. So therefore the spirit will give me what I need to to do what I need to do. And, and I can always learn. If I realize actually I don't have what I need, thought I would have, then he'll have something else.
to, to lead us into. What is the worst grievance we could do against the Holy Spirit of the Lord? So the question is, what is the worst grievance that we could do against the Holy Spirit and what would the repercussions be? Um, the, the Lord Jesus actually talked about um, sinning against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, as it's called. Um, and, and that, in the context of where he says it, is he's talking, it's very clear that he's talking about the Pharisees who were rejecting, saying that the works Jesus was doing by the power of the Spirit were done by, by demons. Okay? Uh, in other words, those were people who had hardened their heart against God in such a way that they would not, even though the evidence was there of all the miracles Jesus was doing, they would not see, they would not trust in him, they wouldn't open their minds. So that's the worst thing that somebody could do, is to reject him altogether. Because if we reject him altogether, then we cannot be saved. Okay, so the un, it's unpardonable because there can be no forgiveness if we won't open our, our minds and our hearts to the Spirit uh, of God. To question mark, some people say, well, that sin could only be committed when Jesus was on earth because people had to be rejecting him in person. Uh, and others say, well, no, maybe people can commit it today, but A, we would never know if they have or not, and B, even if they've committed that sin, if they then turn, maybe there's still a possibility of salvation. But for the Christian who has believed in Jesus, um, I, I think maybe it's not so much the worst individual thing that we can do. I think it's just that sense that the further we go, the longer, if you yeah, the longer you ignore him when he's speaking to you in the passenger seat, then the easier it becomes for us to ignore him. The, the, the more we go down a path of our own choosing, then the colder we become, the love for God decreases, the flame goes down, it needs to be fanned into flame. Um, but the wonderful thing that is, I think it, we can be assured of is that as soon as we turn back again, as soon as we start listening again, he is there to speak for us. So I think, what are the consequences? It's all the consequences that might come from living for a long time away from God, ignoring him, doing sinful and selfish things. But that will not take us out of the love of God. The Spirit, as Scripture says, will never leave us. So he's not going to say, okay, I'm climbing out of the car. He will still be there. So the key thing is that we keep turning back to him. Yes, it's the same idea, that sin against the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against the Spirit, the unpardonable sin. That's what Jesus, that's what I was talking about, the person who, who then uh, attributes specifically the work of Jesus to demons. He says that those things that you are believing in, that's actually a work of Satan, that Jesus was not the Son of God, but he actually was a deceiver. Okay, so that's to blaspheme against the Spirit. Um, and if somebody is worried that they've committed that sin, thinks I can't be forgiven, I think if, if you're thinking that question, and if you're worried about that and wanting to be saved, that's a sign that you haven't committed it. Do you see what I mean? This is talking about people like those Pharisees, those religious leaders who, who ended up putting Jesus to death because they would not consider that he might have come from God. So if you're thinking, I hope I haven't committed that sin, you haven't, <laughs> okay? You can turn to God and, and, and uh, receive his forgiveness. If you had committed it, you wouldn't be worried about it. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. 
God bless.